Welcome back. Another episode of Political Theory and um, other stuff. Paul and I are here doing chapter four of Capitalist Realism. Uh, the chapter is called Reflexive Impotence, Immobilization, and Liberal Communism. Paul, did you want to start it off? I sure will. Thank you very much. All right. By contrast with their forebears in the 1960s and 1970s, British students today appear to be politically disengaged, while French students can still be found on the streets protesting against neoliberalism. British students, whose situation is incomparably worse, seem resigned to their fate. But this, I want to argue, is a matter not of apathy nor of cynicism, but of reflexive impotence. They know things are bad, but more than that, they know they can't do anything about it. That knowledge, that reflexivity, is not a passive observation of an already existing state of affairs. It is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Reflexive impotence amounts to an unstated worldview amongst the British young and has its correlate in widespread pathologies. Many of the teenagers I worked with had mental health problems or learning difficulties. Depression is endemic. It is the condition most dealt with by the National Health Service and is afflicting people at increasingly younger ages. The number of students who have some variant of dyslexia is astonishing. It is not an exaggeration to say that being a teenager in late capitalist Britain is now close to being reclassified as a sickness. Pathologization already forecloses any uh, possibility of politicization. By privatizing these problems, treating them as if they were caused only by chemical imbalances in the individual's neurology and or by their family background, any question of social systemic causation is ruled out. True. You know, I think back to our times being teenagers, all of us were dealing with um, some mental health issues, but they were, I wouldn't say, I, and I, I could be wrong, it just didn't feel like our entire group of people around us were in quite as dire of straits uh, as this picture currently paints. And that's maybe a 15 year gap. Um, right, but also keep in mind, not only that, but a different socioeconomic class, because he's working with kids that are, it sounds like this type of school he works in is, pardon me, lower than a community college, maybe, you know, right. like almost like a technical college. Okay. And I feel like, A, our socioeconomic class obviously helped with that. And B, because it was 15 years ago, it was more stigmatized than it is now to talk about such things, you yes, know? That's so, so yeah, that's, that's another thing. True. And we lucked out and grew up in like a super beautiful place. And yep. 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 You know, that, that I'm sure helps out. I, I feel sorry that uh, we live in societies where people have to burden all of the pressure of what's going on with their mental health. As the writing implies, at least as of now, I, I don't feel perhaps like there is enough of an acknowledgement of the social factors that are leading in, into these uh, states of mind. Absolutely will. not. If you acknowledge that, then you have to either say, we're okay with medicating people more yeah. because of our social structure, or you have to say, maybe we need, you know, change our social structure. Right. And either of those is not a good idea. <laughs> you know, I mean, at least from their standpoint, it makes much more sense to look at it as like, these are individuals with individual problems that are either biological or whatever. That's it. This isn't the cause of the system or just saying, oh, we only see it now more because we can identify it. Just shit like that. Right. And, and I'll say uh, on that topic, at least in, in there Colorado. There is some truth to that. There is some right. But, right. But I'll, I'll say in Colorado, like the number, I, I think the number one contributor 
or motivator for uh, attempted suicide was financial stuff. Yeah. Fuck, so dude. that, and it's, you know, I mean, I can, uh, from my own personal experience, I'm in my mid thirties at this point, truly at this point, you know, I've had real grief in life. Um, but as far as stress goes, the only times that I have been unbelievably stressed were tied to finances because there is no help. It's like, what do I turn to a fucking 25% interest loan so that I can get more in debt next month than I am this month? Like, what the fuck am I supposed to do here? I have a job. I go to work. Uh, I have a job that won't let me take another job, literally. Uh, what, what the fuck am I supposed to do? I do eat ramen. I've never even had avocado toast. Uh, it's uh um i'll read the next just paragraph okay um many of the teenage students i encountered seem to be in a state of what i would call depressive hedonia uh, depression is usually characterized as a state of anhedonia but the condition i'm referring to is constituted by an inability to get pleasure so much as it is by an inability an inability to do anything else except pursue pleasure there is a sense that something is missing, but no appreciation that this mysterious missing enjoyment can only be accessed beyond the pleasure principle. In large part, this is a consequence of students' ambiguous structural position. Stranded between their old role as subjects of disciplinary institutions and their new status as consumers of services. In his crucial essay, Postscript on Societies of Control, Deleuze distinguishes between the disciplinary societies described by Foucault how do you say that again? Foucault. Foucault, okay. Yeah. Um, described by Foucault, which were organized around the enclosed spaces of the factory, the school, and the prison, and the new control societies in which all institutions are embedded in a dispersed corporation. Fuck, oh, dude, reading that shit out loud just feels so dystopian. Like, oh, mm -hmm. And it's so crazy that they were all concepts that people were super concerned about for a long time. Like, there is so much... Not, maybe not so much, but there is a sizable amount of literature that was written, you know, anywhere from the 20s to the 60s, just like full of, granted they're living in that sort of society, maybe not to the hyper extent it is today. Um, but it's not like this happened without canaries, you know, like singing their little, you know, fucking we're fucked. <laughs> like, right, I, right. You know, uh, it's probably more that those were prescient authors and had a good sense of where social structure was heading. Yeah. Um, Times, you know, like shit like 1984, like literally this week, our president got on the air, said some shit about we need to look into injecting disinfectants to kill the coronavirus, recorded on tape, uh, and has now we're in a full on information campaign about how he didn't say that. Um, or uh, how he's being sarcastic. Sarcastic, right. But um, no exaggeration, the comments that I encounter in online threads are more like, that's not what he said, y'all are just misinterpreting everything, that couldn't be it, and it's like, no, dude, it's on tape. Like, we've actually reached to the point where people can go on, get recorded, and still not be fucking pegged to the shit that they said. That's like his 1984, as I can actually... Uh, A couple years ago, the uh, Oxford's word of the year was, uh, I think, post-truth or maybe it was post-fact or something. And that's clearly dystopian. And, yeah. it's, and that's the thing is it's no longer, and I can't remember what I was reading or what I was listening to, but people were talking about how part of the problem with liberals versus Trump is liberals think they can like fact check him into submission. But the reality is that his base and he are not concerned with facts. 
right? They're right. concerned with their, their narrative. And so it doesn't matter if you fact check him. Right. And in fact, it seems to embolden them. Right. Like, they're like, oh, we're super sorry. You're not smart enough to dig through what Donald Trump is saying to get to what he really means. If y'all weren't just total stupid heads, understand. And then it's just like, well, yeah, but the president isn't supposed to behave like that. Just from like a figurehead interaction way, that's not the sort of shit you're supposed to get through with the president. I'm not supposed to be like considering the president in the same light as an Instagram influencer as to whether or not they think in essential oils work, you know? Well, like, let's be real. Instagram influencers are so much more, so much more direct, you know? Yeah. They're like, yeah. this, this uh, tea tree oil made my dick grow bigger. Like everyone right. should consume right. this, this tea tree oil. Whereas, um, what was that again? Tea tree oil? I'm yeah. Just taking notes. Just taking notes. Sorry. They, they, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> fucking, but the thing is, is like Trump talks in, the most extreme level of of vagary yeah i used to i remember uh living in seattle with hampton and and kevin and we used to do this thing called the bullshit wall where we would see how much you could talk without saying anything like just just saying like vague like kind of business platitudes and generalities you know like like uh you know there are pros and cons to every situation. When you think back to last week, you see that Frank and Jim did touch base. They're on different pages slightly, but overall there is a synergy that will take place that will move us in a new direction, right? Oh, so and I think the growth we see into next week uh, will really spur that momentum uh, previously discussed. Um, right, and so- and we used to joke got around, the NSA tapes for your guys' apartment? Right, I was just gonna say, you know, we used to joke around about it, but he is so good at saying stuff without saying anything, and then you can put whatever meaning, you can plug yeah. in your meaning into what he's saying. There are tweets where he's like, well, we're moving into new times. And like, you can look at that and be like, yay, things are getting better. Or, oh my God, he's right. Things are getting worse. And he wins either way. So anyhow, it's just- it's, it's such crazy. like a, it's such a momentum behind like prosperity uh, gospel as well. Where yeah. these fucking vague notions that are so vague that they never have to be backed up um, are so vague that you like, yeah, exactly what you just said. You can't dispute vagueness because they can switch their interpretation of what they said uh, every 10 minutes. Okay, so Deleuze is right to argue that Kafka is the prophet of distributed cybernetic power that is typical of control societies. In the trial, Kafka importantly distinguishes between two types of acquittal available to the accused. Definite acquittal is no longer possible if it was ever, if it ever was. We have only let legendary accounts of ancient cases which provide in instances of acquittal. The two remaining options then are one, ostensible acquittal, in which the accused is to all intents and purposes acquitted, but may later at some unspecific time face the charges in full, or two, indefinite postponement in which the accused engages in what they hope is an infinitely protracted process of legal wrangling so that the dreaded ultimate judgment is unlikely to be a forthcoming. 
Deleuze observes that the control societies delineated by Kafka himself, but also by Foucault and Burroughs, operate using indefinite postponement. Education as a lifelong process, training that persists as, uh, or tra training that persists for as long as your working life continues. Work you take home with you. Working from home, homing from work, a consequence of this indefinite mode of power is the external surveillance is succeeded by internal policing. Control only works if you are complicit with it. Hence the Burroughs figure of the control addict, the one who is addicted to control, but also inevitably the one who has been taken over, possessed by control. Yeah, so just, I remember, you know, I used to drive from Denver to Seattle occasionally, and it used to be you wouldn't have uh, cell phone service for a lot of the trip. More recently, I did it like a couple years ago, and my friend Jacob, he had his phone, he had service, and he had already said he was going on vacation. He had given his responsibilities over to someone else, and yet he was fielding fucking emails and phone calls for work most of the fucking drive. Yep. And no. it's just like, oh my God, dude, this is fucking insane. Having my company shut down is the first like actual vacation I've gotten since I started working with them. Like, yeah, I got a week to go to Seattle for a wedding and things like that, but it was still three to four hours of work a day while also having to use my vacation time uh, just to not be coming into the office. It's the whole setup, like the whole week before I was leaving, my boss would talk about like, how are you going to deal with the work pile up? What are your plans for when you get back? The other issue is, is that nobody in any workplace I've ever had has a lot of extra time. So you can try to ask people to pick up the slack for your shit, um, that they will have any extra time is not existent. And I would specifically tell people like, hey, if you have time, sure, help. Um, but please don't like put in extra hours at work this week because I'm not there. Uh, and then at least in my work life experience, there's no way that I could just tell my boss, well, hey, I was on vacation kind of in a joking sense, but also not. Um, I was planning my next vacation to be to a place where I had no access to internet and no access to cell phone service and stuff, just because I know they can't tell me where I can and can't vacation. Uh, and that would be a literal excuse and I would just have dealt with the work pile up. When they know you could be reached, fuck you, dude, there's no way you're actually getting a vacation. Walk into almost any class at the college where I taught and you will immediately appreciate that you are in a post disciplinary framework. Foucault painstakingly enumerated the way in which discipline was installed through the imposition of rigid body postures. During lessons at, col at our college, however, students will be found slumped on a desk, talking almost constantly, snacking incessantly, or even on occasion eating full meals. The old disciplinary segmentation of time is breaking down. The car, okay, so carceral, like prisons. The carceral, carceral regime of discipline is being eroded by the, the technologies of control with their systems of perpetual consumption and continuous development. I don't know if I really understand that. Um, just like, so I, my guess is that 
prior to people just being able to access entertainment and things of that nature all the time, you had to have more of a disciplinary structure in place so people were afraid to misbehave um, or step out of line. And I think now we just have so much media available that we're more kept in line by being pushed to perpetually be in consumption uh, as well as like you'll never reach uh, a point of stasis. Like you can't ever be comfortable because fucking you know you have 10 things you have to learn for next week and shit like that. That's my guess. I could be totally wrong. The other thing I want to touch on is uh, what they were talking about with acquittals. I feel like there's like a split between classes with that in our country. Like, yes, if you are rich, you can fucking have a uh, indefinite postponement for sure. Like you can keep your case in trial for the next 20 years uh, until basically the other side ran out of money or whatever. I don't feel like that part applies to poor people. There's just no acquittal. It's just, you're going to jail. And, oh yeah. Uh, but I don't think he's using acquittal like just in the um, legal, sense. Um, legal sense. Yeah. Because you look at the examples he gives for, for the indefinite acquittal and it says right. and education like, as a lifelong process training that persists for as long as uh, your working life continues. And I feel like those are true for um, both classes. Cause even if you're yeah, like, um, I mean, I guess maybe if you're so rich that you're actually not doing like any work, but even if you're like part of like a vulture capitalist firm, you need yeah, to, you still have to grow your income. Right. And you have to learn how to like uh, use zoom, you know, mm-hmm. when, when the pandemic hits, you didn't know well, how to do that. You just underpay younger people to do all that shit for you. That's uh, true too. That's true too. Super other valid option. The amount of older people I worked with who like every time would be like, hey, how do I flip this PDF again? Okay. Uh, The system by which the college is funded means that it literally cannot afford to exclude students, even if it wanted to. Resources are allocated to colleges on the basis of how successful they meet targets on achievement exam results, attendance, and retention of students. This combination of market imperatives, is that imperatives? Okay, Okay. market imperatives with bureaucratically defined targets is typical of the market Stalinist initiatives, uh, which now regulate public services. The lack of an effective disciplinary system has not, to say the least, been compensated for by an increase in student self-motivation. Students are aware that if they don't attend for weeks on end and or if they don't produce any work, they will not face any meaningful sanction. They typically respond to this freedom not by pursuing projects, but by falling into hedonic or anhedonic lassitude the soft narcissist uh right or no the soft narcosis the soft narcosis the comfort food oblivion of playstation all night tv and marijuana i feel attacked right now Uh, (laughs) right seriously (laughs) seriously (laughs) but uh i my only anecdote for that is that prior to college you know i had people like my mom my dad just the older generation hard college was going to be. Uh, I need to clear this up. Like I'm low level academics are pretty easy for me. And I was just expecting college to be, you know, later on, it got a little more intense, but my opening classes, I would be 
peer editing papers where it's just like, dude, why the fuck are you even, and maybe this sounds mean, but it's like, why are you here? Obviously, um, you didn't read anything we were supposed to read or look into anything we were supposed to look into. Like, nobody's forcing you to be here. Um, and, you know, I think, oh, I know during my mom and dad's time for college, like getting into college was actually pretty hard. I graduated with a decent GPA and did well on standardized tests, but I didn't get denied by any college I applied to. And that's fucking wild. Like, I didn't have extracurriculars out the ass. I sure didn't have a 4.0 or like an above 4.0. Um, you know, I don't belong to any groups that would be helped out by, uh, God, what's the shit that Republicans hate? Minorities? Yeah, minorities. But when the minorities are allowed to go to school, <laughs> affirmative action. I sure don't qualify for any sort of thing like affirmative action. Um, and granted, I wasn't applying to like Yale and Oxford, but shit like Tulane and stuff. And they were like, yeah, come on in. Um, and it's because they're not in the, like back in the day when schools were state funded and stuff, um, they were in a much better position to focus on academic success instead of financial success. Um, and now it's like, dude, you got to let these people come in or we're not going to be able to pay our adjunct professors the 10, 20 an hour that we pay them. Situations where I was recruited to classes by adjunct professors because their class would not happen if they didn't hit a specific number of students, that they would not get paid that semester great system for academic excellence but the other thing too is that it's not only that the schools are willing to take whoever but like the majority of jobs or the majority of people feel compelled to go to school too yes if they don't want to be there no you're definitely told like i fucking i never felt like not going to college was an option for me not that i regret college right and that's not what i'm saying but go to college and then you'll get a good college job it was just that second part that right yeah, it wasn't ever like go to college because you uh, to uh, educate yourself or like to you know expand, expand your critical thinking. Right, right, right. Yeah. It was just like you need to fucking do yeah. this so you can make money. Do you want to yeah. hit the next part up? Or? Sure. Okay. Sure. Uh, ask students to read for more than a couple of sentences, and many, and these are A level students, mind you, will protest that they can't do it. The most frequent complaint teachers hear is that it's boring. It is not so much the content of the written material that is at issue here, it is the act of reading itself that is deemed to be boring. What we are facing here is not just time-honored teenage torpor, but the mismatch between a post-literate new flesh that is too wired to concentrate and the confining concentrational logic, logics of decaying disciplinary systems. To be bored simply means to be removed from the communicative sensation stimulus matrix of texting, YouTube, and fast food. To be denied, for a moment, the constant flow of sugary gratification on demand. Some students want Nietzsche in the same way that they want a hamburger. They fail to grasp, and the logic of the consumer system encourages this mis misapprehension, that the indigestibility, the difficulty, is Nietzsche. I do have to say, just from a little bit, I feel like this is a little rough on the younger generation. Not that I'm saying Fisher has fallen into this, um, but I often find it ironic when older people are like, oh, you're on your phone all the time because A, they are on their phone all the time. Um, but B, I mean, like any time that there's been portable media, people take it. Like look at a fucking subway picture from the 1950s. Everybody's got a fucking newspaper or magazine open. Like, um, you know, when the printing press came out, they're like, well, now all kids are going to fucking do is read goddamn books all day instead of, you know, going outside and doing good farm work and shit. Well, I agree with the sentiment that he is saying is that, yes, um, our I, I think lives, go ahead. 
are so much more interconnected to corporations every second of the day than they ever have been. You know, like yep. every act that he talks about is consumption. And, you know, with YouTube and stuff, it's easy to think like I'm not spending money, um, but we are giving up privacy. We are giving up, you know, just add data to make the yep. system, uh, you know, shit like that. It's and time. But, and, but the other thing I was going to say too is, uh, you know, I think he's talking from an aggregate, you know, or, or, or like statistically, like the amount of books people read is down, right? Yeah. Um, the amount of people that, that read books in general is down, you know, and has been uh, decreasing since like the 80s. My only counterpoint would be that I have seen a rise in other media forms. Um, I feel like TV shows are consistently better uh, in the sense that they're deep and invoke like actual thought about social dilemmas and things of that nature. In defense, like True Detective is a much better show than fucking Magnum PI was. Um, mm -hmm. So I do think that a lot of the artistic relevance that books can add have not been replaced, but other mediums have maybe stepped up to a better game on a larger scale. Not that there always haven't been great movies. Um, I'm not sure that there have always been great TV shows, to be honest. That would be my only defense. I still very much enjoy reading, but I do realize that, I'm not that I'm like alone in it. I'm not like some murdered reader, uh, but that I have a lot of friends who are very intelligent that don't really read anymore. But I wouldn't say that they're not consuming like good art. And mm -hmm. it's just, uh, an illustration, I challenged one student about why he always wore headphones class. He replied that it didn't matter because he wasn't actually playing any music. In another lesson, he was playing music at a very low volume through the headphones without wearing them. I asked him to switch it off. He replied that even he couldn't hear it. Why wear the headphones without playing music or play music without wearing the headphones? Because the presence of the phones on the ears or the knowledge that the music is playing, even if he couldn't hear it, was a reassurance that the matrix was still there within reach. Damn, dude, that hits hard to a lot of my lifestyle shit. The amount of time that I just have background noise on just to feel comforted uh, is probably not healthy. Besides, in a classic example of inner passivity, if the music was still playing, even if he couldn't hear it, then the player could still enjoy it on his behalf. <laughs> the use of headphones is significant here. Pop is experienced not as something which could have impacts upon public space, but has a retreat into private uh, edipod, consumer bliss, a wall social. Um, I, it's That's, hard to relate to that. You know, I wear headphones when I walk in public all the time because it's an indicator. Like, just don't talk to me. Right. Um, yeah. I don't want people talking to me either, for yeah. sure. The consequence of being hooked into the entertainment matrix is twitchy, agitated inner passivity, and inability to concentrate or focus. Students' incapacity can, to connect current lack of focus with future failure their inability to synthesize time into any coherent narrative is symptomatic of more than mere demotivation. It is, in fact, eerily reminiscent of Jameson's analysis in postmodernism and consumer society. Jameson observed there that Lacan's theory of schizophrenia offered a suggestive aesthetic for understanding the fragmenting of subjectivity in the face of the emerging entertainment industrial complex. Uh, I read this chapter already, obviously, but reading it aloud just feels deeper and like more hard hitting. I don't yep. Yeah, no, no. I, uh, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this because, and I'm not sure if I've already told this story, but like I read the first chapter of this book and uh, loved it and sent it to 
my brother and um, believe you like uh, immediately within a few weeks of my brother receiving it. He was like, yeah, I read some of it. I've got some questions. I was like, I'd love to explain it to you. Yeah. I know. I know all about it. Don't worry about it. And so we start talking. He's like, okay, on page nine, blah, blah. He says this. And what does that mean? And what, what I realized is when I was reading it silently, if I didn't understand something, uh, because I was just so excited about yeah. the overall ideas, I just skipped ahead. I was just like, oh, whatever, whatever, whatever. And I didn't even realize it. And so being forced to, to read it aloud and talk with someone about it makes me absorb a lot more and also realize what I'm not understanding more often, if that makes yeah. sense. I think what's hitting me right now is that like, I read about all this and I, in my head, to, to be honest, was kind of writing Mark Fisher off. Like you're just maybe being mad against a change in society, but putting it now that we've been talking about it and thinking about it, it's just like, damn dude, the level of gluttony that we really have reached because it's like, I am super guilty of a lot of these things. Um, without even attempting to acknowledge it as a fault. Like an example would be of how shitty I am. Uh, my girlfriend uh, was a fan of The Walking Dead for the first few seasons, and we would watch it, and she would get excited uh, talking about like apocalypse scenarios. And I would always just respond, well, like I'm going to fucking kill myself. Uh, I don't want to switch from fucking uh, YouTube and online video games and hot showers uh, to scavenging woods for fucking food. And that's just shitty of me, man. That like my enjoyment of life is so tethered. These modern conveniences that I can't produce for myself whatsoever. Uh, yeah. It's hit me a little harder than when I, when I read through it. Like you said, yeah, I was able to uh, self-filter what I was reading. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, God damn it, dude. God damn. Mm -hmm. uh, so at the top of page 25, with the breakdown of signifying of with the breakdown of the signifying chain, Jameson summarized, the Lacantian schizophrenic is reduced to an experience of pure material signifiers, or in other words, a series of pure and unrelated presence in time. Jameson was writing in the late 1980s, i.e. the period in which most of my students were born. What we in the classroom are now facing is a generation born into that ahistorical anti-pneumonic blip culture a generation that is to say for whom time has always come ready cut into digital micro slices if the figure of discipline was the worker prisoner the figure of control is the debtor addict uh, cyber, cyberspatial capital operates by addicting its users. William Gibson recognized that, recognized that in uh, Neuromancer when he had Case and the other cyberspace cowboys feeling insects under their skin or under the skin uh, strung out when they unplugged from the Matrix. Cases amphetamine habit is plainly the substitute for an addiction to a far from abstract speed. If then something like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is a pathology, it is a pathology of late capitalism, a consequence of being wired into the entertainment control circuits of hyper 
mediated, okay, hypermediated uh, consumer culture. Similarly, what is called dys dyslexia may in many cases amount to a postlexia. Teenagers process capital's image-dense data very effectively without any need to read. Uh, slogan recognition is sufficient to navigate the net mobile magazine uh, informational plane. Writing has never been capitalism's thing. Capitalism is profoundly illiterate, Deleuze and Guattari argued in Anti-Oedipus. Electric language does not go by way of the voice or writing. Data processing does without them both. Hence, the reason that many successful business people are dyslexic. But is their postlexia efficiency a cause or effect of their success? Yeah, so all of that totally makes sense yeah. to, to me. Such a deep thing because I, this didn't really start happening to me until middle school, uh, but the amount, once I got my own car, I was able to just stop this just much to the dismay of others. Um, but the amount that my life was just like pre-planned and segmented out between like fifth grade through eighth grade was just insane. It's like I'd wake up, go to a band practice, fucking go to school, after school, have uh, either like debate club or some sort of sport sort of thing. Um, and everything was just like condensed into like these micro slices. And then I would come home and do homework for a exact time period. And then I would allow myself like an hour to do something fun or whatever. I think the issue comes is that everybody is expected to just be able to fall into that without any problem to like have no actual freedom in the management of your time. Um, and the older I got, the less and less comfortable I felt with that. And I think uh, from a current societal standpoint, you could say the less and less successful I got on an outside appearance sort of thing. You know, for a lot of, I think I've gotten more comfortable in the fact that I just don't need to fucking rule the world or need a bunch of money to enjoy life. But as a young person, that shit would just stress me out. It really, really would. Not, I, you know, I, I act like I'm beyond that now. I'm just comfortably unemployed right now. You know, when I hear stories about like my grandma's childhood, well, outside of depression times, like my mom and stuff, uh, their childhoods just from youth were so much more unplanned. And my stepsister started to call out on this. But like, yeah, her kid's like, he's like three. And it is literally like day planned out every single day, like play dates, fucking we're going to do this sort of enrichment from this time period to this time period. And thankfully, since I did grow up in the middle of nowhere, at least in summers and stuff, especially in my childhood, childhood, I did have like free reign. I'm like, all right, I'm going outside. I'll come back in when it's dark. I'll do whatever the fuck I want. But I feel like um, not only parents don't do that now, that parents like get looked down upon if they're like, hey, where's your kid? And you're like, I don't know. He's fucking outside somewhere um that's not like an acceptable answer anymore yeah totally that wasn't super uh on point but I, I do feel like um you're not just allowed to have time to enjoy anymore definitely has had a, a negative impact on how i feel about the overwhelmingness of life yeah what i wanted to say being someone that does have add him talking about us being being exposed to like digital slices and uh and whatever like I was playing the original Nintendo way before I could read. Yeah. And, and maybe that wasn't a good idea, you know? Yeah. And I was watching TV way before I could read. And 
uh, maybe that also wasn't a good idea. You know, you talk about kids like uh, not having any time and whatever, and this is all anecdotal stuff, but I do see kids uh, like toddlers with iPads in front of them watching TV shows or, or, or playing little games. In all fairness, it has made restaurants much nicer places. <laughs> right. But, but yeah, yeah. But the, totally those people. And that's the thing too, is like these people are like, well, I want to have children, but I also don't have enough time or the money to have someone take care of my kid. I was just about to say pet sit for my kid. Fucking babysit <laughs> my kid and also go out. So I'll just bring my kid with me and shove the, the iPad in front of them. And, yeah. and we don't know what that's doing to no. their attention spans and stuff. And, uh, you know, part of my problem in fully acknowledging this shit is that due to the rural nature of where I lived, I didn't. Like, at least when I was a kid, kid, this wasn't my reality. Even though a lot of people my age, this was their reality. Uh, I literally was just so rural. Uh, I never had good internet uh, until I moved out of my house. We just couldn't get TV signal until I was like 16. Because even when satellites were like available, because of the mountain range setup, they couldn't, they wouldn't install a dish on our house until like some tower came in a bunch of years later. So um, I just didn't, not because I didn't want to, like, trust me, I was pissed. Uh, as a young person that I didn't have these things. Uh, but I, I guess I, in all honesty, I just really didn't, which maybe is why I read way more as a kid or like, right. Yeah. Weirdo yeah. Nerd shit, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I was talking to, to Danny a few days ago and he just said some crazy shit. He, he's like, dude, I, he picks up his phone. And he's like, dude, I think he's like, if, if humanity makes it through this time period, people will look at this and say, this did way more damage to us than cigarettes ever did. And at the, when he first said that, I was like, what are you talking about? And he's like, dude, as far as like our attention spans and like the level of addiction to it, he's like, dude, I'm sitting in my house trying so hard not, to not pick up my phone and check Twitter. He's like, so hard. He's like, I pick up a book, I start reading my book. And within moments, my mind is like, what's going on with your phone? You know, check your phone. I'm grabbing my phone before I even think about why I'm grabbing my phone. I'm just like, yeah. holy shit, dude. I had no thought about is, like that, but it, 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 it could is. be devastating. It's so hard for me to get down on improved forms of communication um, because while a lot of this shit sucks, it's so cool to see places like Syria and shit put up their own mobile networks and shit so that they can blame on the device because it, I feel like the culture was obviously trying to figure out how to monopolize your attention a shit ton before phones came out as well. Yeah, I was like, just talking about playing video games and like yeah. in the early or late 80s, early 90s and watching TV before, you know, I was forced to try to read on my own, yeah. you know. The one thing that I like about my phone as opposed to like what drives me insane and what I can't understand because I never grew up with TV with commercials. I just as a human can't handle TV with commercials, you know, like a standard network broadcast. If it's not like Netflix or some other service I pay for, uh, I just won't watch it. And mm -hmm. uh, same even like the movie channels, like they don't have commercials, but I'm like, fuck you. I have to be here at exactly 6.15 to watch this. I don't fucking think I'm going to pull that off. Just, I don't use those things. And because of that, uh, randomly through other services, I have YouTube premium because it came free with like another thing I use. So I don't watch ads on fucking shit. Um, yeah. Which I can appreciate that. That's sick. Yeah. And once again, I have like a different feeling I think because I fucking hated it so much when I worked that my issue is people get mad at me that I like don't check it enough which right. is another, yep. another problem like yep. it's like people are literally mad at me and that's the part I miss the most is it being okay not to be contacted for a while yep 
yeah. but these days like dude if my dad can't get a hold of me in an hour or you know anybody like if i miss a call or don't respond to a text oftentimes i'm seriously not being a dick it's just like i'll just put my phone on do not disturb and set yeah. it aside and yeah. do like i'm not like meditating or anything i am doing like video games or fucking you know reading or some shit um but yeah i won't see like five text messages and then I'll get nervous to reply because I'm like, oh, fuck, they're going to be mad. I didn't see this. What do I do now? It's just a weird year. Yeah, I guess the more I talk about this, the more I agree with them. It has put shit into a very weird state of constant tension for me. Mm-hmm. For, uh, for sure. I don't want to look at this, but if I don't, I'm going to miss. It's so crazy for me how easy slipping into unemployment has been for me. <laughs> These things that used to just torment me every day, uh, I'm just kind of like being out like post-trauma style. I'm just right. Like, oh, I think we're gonna chop this chapter into two parts here. Paul uh, said that he thought it was best if we stop here, and I I tend to agree with him. Um, Next episode, we will be picking up on the bottom of page 25, chapter four of Capitalist Realism. Thank you all, and uh, it was a blast. Have a blessed day, y'all.